Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. Today we have Sandra with us. Sandra lost her husband from a drug overdose almost two years ago. Sandra is now a single mom of four children coping with her husband's death. Her number one most important focus is raising her family. Her second most important focus is her nonprofit, FASFA United, which stands for Families of Addicts Supporting Families of Addicts. The mission is to arrange and facilitate the necessary support and resources to help families, partners, spouses, children, dependents, cope with and heal from the devastating results of loving a person who suffers from addiction. Her goal is to empower relatives to understand their role and define healthy boundaries. Addiction happens to all different types of people from all different types of backgrounds. Her story is powerful, and everything she is learning and doing to help others is inspiring. Sandra is really pushing for families to have the support she was missing through recovery and the loss. Sandra, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Sandra, we are so thrilled to have you share your story with us. I do want to share a quote that we read to all of our guests before we get started. Um, And the quote was not attributed to any person. So we don't know who said it or wrote it, but we love it. And it's part of why we do what we do. Sandra, one day you will tell your story of how you've overcome what you've gone through now, and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Yes, Sandra. So when we were getting started and just kind of learning to tee you up for this interview today on our podcast, you know, I asked you how long it's been since your husband overdosed and passed away. And you shared with us that it was June 28th of 2020. So we just learned that his angel anniversary is coming up in two weeks. And I'm very sorry for your loss. And I would love for you to take us and our listeners through that addiction process. Kara and I are familiar with addiction. We, we understand that it is it affects everybody. It affects everybody. And so, yeah, if you would share your story of how it affected you and your family and your husband, we would really appreciate it. Okay. Um, thank you. Oh, gosh. When I met my husband, he was in recovery. I had no idea really of what about addiction. And um, he was very fresh out of rehab. So I didn't, I didn't really um, understand it. He was on Suboxone. He worked. He he was a very hard worker. He always busted his butt working lots of hours and everything. He always helped the neighbors with his, um, because he did drywall. He was a level five drywaller. And Sandra, what is Suboxone? What for the the readers? And how long were you, how long ago did you meet? 
your your late husband? I met him it, 10 years ago, almost 11 years ago. So Suboxone is used for alcohol and opioid um, dependency. It blocks the receptor in the brain to want to get high. Like, so you won't, you don't really get high from it, but it just blocks that feeling of wanting to get high from what I, the understanding that I know of it. Thank you. You're welcome. So he was on Suboxone, which normally you're only supposed to be on it for a short period of time. He was on it for, I guess, a very extended time. Before he met me, he had, he had overdosed as well in the past. I didn't really know about any of the details to his addiction prior. No one really, his family didn't live in Florida at that time. And no one really shared too much of it with me. Neither did he. Uh, so we we were dating. We kind of like rushed into a relationship like right away. He was my rock with everything. Always like from day one, he I we walked into the relationship with a child each, and then we had three together. So he my my son's father is not in the picture, his biological father. So he took that role right away to my seven year old and went to all his football games and was very involved that way, as well as with his young daughter at the time. So let's get to the part where we have children and he, that's where he, right before, yeah, right after we had kids, I guess he, he relapsed. And I, that was about five years into our, four years into our relationship. I didn't know. I really didn't. It was other things that I found out about before the actual, before the drugs, which was for me harder. It was, you know, there's an expression that they always say that the addict will, a person that suffers from addiction will relapse before they actually even touch the drug. So I guess when you go, when I look back at everything, we, I was very insecure. I had my own issues, I guess, before I met him and he had his own insecurities. We kind of, I guess, fed each other our addictions. I was very enabling. I accepted a lot of the things and he constantly told me how beautiful I was, always took care of me. And it was the best, like it was, it was the best. Every, he always, 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 always went out of his way to make sure I was okay. Then things started to spiral after we had uh, the twins, because we have twin girls. Then I got pregnant again right after. So things started to get very, very sticky and very, very fast. I found out I would find, I would find drugs all over the place, but I didn't, I didn't even know what it was. Um, Sandra, Sandra, is this prescription drugs or not prescription drugs? Not prescription. Okay. All right. I wasn't sure. Yeah, no, I would find bags of like crystally stuff. Okay. Is that how you knew it was getting sticky? You said things were getting real sticky. Was, was that your sign that things were getting sticky or is there another sign? Oh, there was other signs. Like before, again, I didn't find out about the drugs. I found out about just a lot of infidelity and stuff like that. I found out about just a lot of stuff like that. A lot of infidelity, a lot of um, internet stuff. It was, it was hard seeing that. It was hard seeing the infidelity. I'm sure. As opposed to addiction and or drugs, because in my mind that he had no control over everything else you can control. Like if you have infidelity, but they go hand in hand. Exactly. I was just going to say, I think all of that goes hand in hand. Yeah, it was, it was, it was rough. It was rough seeing all the stuff I saw 
It was a lot. It was a, a, a lot, a lot of fighting. Um, and he never touched the bank accounts. I always handled the money. So I didn't even understand where he was getting money, but he did work a lot of side jobs. So I guess that was cash. That was easy to skim off. And he was, he owned his own business. Then I got him, he got into his first arrest. He got arrested in 2018 of April. And that was the first time that I really, I ever saw my husband like basically begging for stuff. Like I'd never seen him like that. I never saw him at his knees, like in pain and or anything. He was he was very functional up until that point. Was he begging for drugs at that point? Begging for a fix or begging for forgiveness? What was he begging for? Not forgiveness, really. Not forgiveness. It was more like I'm in I'm in pain. I need to like I just need to get through this weekend. I need to get. I need to just make sure I'm okay for this weekend. And then then you could put me into a rehab. Like it was just bargaining. Yeah. Constant bargain. I never, I never saw that from him. Like ever before that, I never saw him lying up in a bed, crying, shake. I never saw that. And until that day. So he was going through your, it sounds like your husband was going through the DTs or detoxing withdrawal. Yes. That's disturbing. It was really, I never, I never, he's a six foot one guy. So I did not, I did not understand that. Of course, you know, at that point you you never see your husband like that. I had bailed him out of jail. He had like three felony charges at that point. What was he arrested for? He fell asleep in his vehicle in a, in a parking lot in a hotel that he was staying in, but he didn't, I guess they didn't realize he was staying at that hotel. And, um, he told the police officer, go ahead, search my car. And there was like baggies in there. Mm. So he also was, okay. So then he went to, he was in a rehab. He, we got him into the Phoenix house and he overdosed at the Phoenix house up in, up in uh, Citra. Wow. He overdosed there. Um, and I didn't know about it. Is the Phoenix house like a halfway house after? No, it's a rehab. It's a rehab. Oh, it is the actual rehab. So he he was really serious if he was smuggling drugs into the rehab because that's hard to do. So he was yeah really really dire straits I can see. Yeah, I didn't even know about like I guess he overdosed like two other times before that, but I didn't know in the rehab. No, like before the rehab, there were periods when I he couldn't stay at the house. I wouldn't I couldn't allow it. It was just so bad. It was volatile the fighting, but it wasn't volatile from him. Because he's such a passive guy. Like he was, yeah. It was me flipping out because I would find things or he would be locked in the bathroom for hours on the toilet bowl and I would be banging to try to open the door. So my kids saw a lot of that. They saw me freaking out. They didn't see their dad freaking out. He was very quiet. Maybe one time they saw him fighting with me. Then after he overdosed at the rehab, which I didn't know right about. They, he left the rehab and he, it was right around our anniversary time for our wedding. And I didn't hear from him. And then finally he came back. But at that point, then he relapsed again. And um, I had already marchman acted him at that point. I got a mark. What does that mean? Um, that's when you go to the courts and you basically tell the judge that they are a danger to themselves or others due to substance abuse. So the courts get involved and you can be in that program for like five years. So every time you, they pick you up, if you have didn't comply with your order, they put you in, they hold you for a certain amount of hours and then they put you in the, into, they'll put you either in jail, not to arrest you, 
but to hold a spot like until they find a bed for you at a rehab. So he was in, he was Marchman acted. They found him because of the fact that he overdosed and they were able to serve him the papers and they kept him. He was then in um, DACO for five months. What is DACO? It's another rehab in Tampa. And um, he never like, he came home during the pandemic, after the pandemic, like when it was just hitting. Mm-hmm. And um, the this the count the state like for um for the March Mac asked me to drop the charges because they said that he was already in a drug program from Pinellas County from the arrest and I was going to but they said to me you know they called me the courts and everything well if you're going to drop the charges he's still not complying with outpatient where they should have said make sure he's complying with the outpatient program because the judge may not remember when you go to drop the charges. Well, COVID happened, the state of Florida shut down, and he didn't have to do drug testing for Pinellas County. He just had to do everything through Zoom? Email. No, through email. He just had to fill out paperwork through email. So he didn't even have to take drug, like any drug tests, where if he was still with the Marchman and made sure that he was complying, he would have had to because that didn't shut down. Wow. That's where things were like, I couldn't believe that they did that. They allowed. And that was when you check in by email, you don't have to take a drug test. You're not taking drug tests. But if they would have, if the, if the courts would have said, well, since you're dropping the charges, make sure he still complies with everything, he would have been drug tested and held accountable for everything, which is very crucial in the first year of sobriety, which again, I didn't understand that. When he left, when he when he finished the rehab, they wanted him to, they wanted him to go to a, a halfway house. I had a hard time with that. I had a really hard time with that because he wasn't home for so long already for nine months. And then before that, it was like in and out of the house. And I just was so insecure. And I thought he would just use that as a uh, a cover. And that that was not good for his recovery. So being that we, being that that happened, that messed up a lot of things with him getting the help he needed. Yeah. I should have, you know, in hindsight now, looking back, I didn't understand codependency as much. But before all that, taking it back, we tried for so many things. We went to a marriage retreat, retrovi. We did counseling. We did private, like separate counseling. We did counseling together. And in the end, no matter what we tried, it didn't, it didn't matter. It just he overdosed. And that was hard because when um that day, okay, let's back it up. On June 25th, he hadn't come home that night. Now, before that, I already knew that. He was relapsing before he even touched it because I saw that he stopped going to meetings. Um, he was working again excessively. We were both working like crazy at that point. And he was remodeling my boss's house. So things were just already starting to. And then again, there goes the internet. And I see other stuff going on back with the online stuff and meeting girls. So that was like just nuts for me. And then on the 25th, he came home in the morning from not from working overnight and he went to hand me a check. And when he handed me the check, I should have never, at that point, I made sure that I didn't, um, whatever I said, I had to follow through with. I couldn't um, threaten anymore. I, everything I said, I made sure I, I thought about it. I prayed about it. I did everything 
before reacting. So I had already made it a point to report him to the marchman that he was not complying. And I did that. But that morning when he came home, I told him and I shouldn't have told him because that made him run. There was no need for me to tell him, but I did. I told him that I reported you because I didn't want him. I didn't want it to catch him off guard. I was trying to be as honest as possible with everything with him. And then with all of that, um, he left and I didn't want to continue the cycle of the craziness, like chasing him in the vehicle and trying to find him. And um, on the 28th, he called me in the morning and said he was going to come visit to see the kids. And we started bickering because I'll never forget his voice that day. I never forget that. I never heard him sound like that. He sounded like, I can't even explain that voice, but the police officer said he was probably overdosing at that point. His voice was so like, oh, I'll never forget. I can't even explain it. It was not nice. And um, come, I, we let me and the kids went to the beach. He never came. And I remember driving back. And actually, when I was at the beach, I told my friend, I said, I feel like bad. Something bad's going to happen. I just feel something bad's going to happen. And she's like, I don't know why you're saying that. I'm like, I don't know. I just have a really bad feeling. Something's not right. So on the way home, I was going to stop at a hotel that I thought he was at, but I didn't want to do the cycleness. Like something had to give. Like if I, if I went and searched, then I was back into that same cycle that I was trying to break. So I didn't, I went home and then then I got a phone, not a phone call, a knock. I saw before the knock on the door, I saw a vehicle pull up and I didn't know why they were pulled up. So I went to my car and I took a picture of the license plate and I sent it to a friend of mine. And he's like, oh, that's undercover cops. So I waited and waited. And then all of a sudden, another cop car, another undercover came and they knocked on my door and they asked me like to step outside, but I wouldn't step outside because I was like, why do you want me to step outside? Well, you would. I'm thinking they're trying to arrest me. And um, they asked me questions and they told me. And I was in a lot of shock. I was very shocked. My kids were inside. I had mm. dinner on the stove that was burning. Oh, my goodness. My dad happened to pull up and I was like hysterical crying. I had to call my mother-in-law because I didn't I didn't want to be the one to tell her that her son died. So I, I had the police officer call. But then having to tell, I didn't tell my kids that night, I had to take everything in and and my kids like slept at my sister's house that night. And the next day I went and I spoke to them and I told them that their dad, like, cause I spoke to a counselor. So tell a four-year-old and, and a six-year-old that their, their dad died. And the one, the one twin, she just, the tears just poured down her face and she, she hid, she hid under the table. And the little four-year-old, he had no idea. He's like, oh, daddy died. Oh, that's sad. Like he had no concept. Oh, wow. No concept of it. And then, but before all that, before all that, there was so many other times of craziness, of chasing in vehicles. And and one other time, my husband, before all that, it was probably about six months. That was one other time I saw him really bad. He hadn't slept like seven days and it was in the middle of summer and he was with oh he was with um long sleeves and everything and it just happened to be that we both pulled up at a in uh next to each other driving like I was not even expecting to see him and then of course all the craziness you chase him you're chasing in a vehicle you're oh my god you don't the crazy things that you do because you don't even 
you don't understand. Like you're just you're driving, you're you're like with adrenaline, you're angry, you're freaking out, and you pull up in a parking lot, and it wasn't my husband. It was the weirdest. I mean, it was, but oh. paranoid. Don't touch me. He was freaking out for me not to touch him, not to like go near him. That I was gonna, that I was out to get him, and he was just from I guess not sleeping and on all these God knows what, what he was on, and he, oh, it was just. And that was like one of the other times that I, there were parts where I had to look back and I'm like, oh my God, I, that, I can't believe that was, I can't believe that was Danny. I cannot believe that was Danny. Like, cause he wasn't your typical, typical person that suffered from addiction. He worked, he made good money. I was a stay at home mom. When he got arrested was when I realized that I, uh, I needed to get a job. I knew that if I didn't want to lose my house, I couldn't, that was the first time I couldn't count on him anymore. He lost a business. They bought him out, his uncle. And I was, I never let, I have never let myself be put in a situation that I can lose like my apartment, my house. I just, I have a kid. I always had a kid to think about my first. So I was not going to let myself now with four kids lose my house, lose everything. So I was working like four jobs. I was working like Uber Eats. I was working catering. I was working um, at a pest control company. I was just, Every little way I could make extra money, I was trying to make it because I did not want to lose my house. And that was like the hardest. One of the hardest things was realizing I couldn't count on him anymore. And he was my backbone for everything. You know, Sandra, a couple things. One of them is when you talk about the craziness, I think for those of us who know an addict, we know what a wonderful person they are. This is an emotional topic for me. Hang on. Let's see if I can do this. I think we know what a wonderful person they are. And when we see them go downhill, we get crazed by what they're doing to themselves. And we think I can save them. I need to help them. And we do all of these things and we look back and we're like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Because I don't, I don't have control over their, their, what, you know, their behavior, but but you want to see that good person get, you know, they're a good person. You want to try and drag them back to health. And the other thing I was going to mention is that you, you know, you talked about, you know, I should have, maybe I should have done this and that you um, were insecure and you enabled, but I also hear a woman who threw him out of the house, who got the court system involved and who, you know, mentioned a couple of times, like I had to make sure I could stand on my own. And you're, you're a survivor, my friend, you are strong, you're brave, and you are a survivor and you, you know, you protected your kids as best you could and yourself too, because you needed to do that for yourself as much as you loved him and you wanted to help Danny, you know, you were doing for yourself and your kids too, which is, which is amazing given all that you've gone through. I don't know if I necessarily always felt like I, like I was doing the best I could because you spiral with them. You really spiral. Yeah. You flip out, you scream, you're you're the crazy one. And I wasn't always nice. I would find things and I would just go ballistic. I'd go ballistic. Like I saw red. I don't know if you ever saw red like that. Mm. When you see the things, it was a lot. It was a lot. When I look back at everything, I. Yes. And I want you to maybe try and find some grace for yourself because as Kara is saying, and as you know, addiction affects everybody. And you were just trying to get Danny back and you wanted Danny healthy and you were chasing 
him to help him. You weren't chasing him to push him. Yeah. You were chasing him to pull him towards you. And um, and that's different. You were certainly trying to do everything you could to get back to health. Danny made a comment, and, oh, well, many comments that he couldn't be my everything. And he was my everything. And that was like the biggest thing. That was codependency. He was my everything. He was the one that took care of me. He was the one that made me feel beautiful. He was the one that cheered me on when I didn't think I can do something. He was like, you can do it. Even when my family would be like, you're crazy white. You can't go and travel to go. Uh, I wanted to go with uh, to the with the Red Cross for the um when the hurricanes. I wanted to go to the Panhandle for like two weeks and and help. I didn't do it, but my family was all like, "You have kids. You have to. That's what you have to think about." And Danny was like, "Don't worry, we'll figure it out. If that's what you want to do, you can do it." Like he was my cheerleader. Now who's your cheerleader? Now who's who's telling you you're beautiful? I'm. I don't myself. I have to. I guess, but it's not easy. No, but you're learning. And you're learning to to give you what you need rather than looking for it somewhere else. It's a lot of stress, though, too, to be honest. A lot of change. It is a lot of change. It's a lot of change. Yeah. And it's not easy to rely on yourself. Like, it's, 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 it is nice to have a partner, sick or healthy, right? But someone cheering you on. But you still have him in your heart to cheer you on. I mean, that was who he was, right? That, that was who he was regardless. He was your cheerleader. He can still be that for you. Always. I I could hear sometimes like when I when I'm going through things, I'll be like, okay, that was that was that's Danny telling me to keep going. But it's it was my kids hearing my kids. That's hard. My little guy that tells me I don't have a daddy. I don't have a daddy. Can you get married, mama? So I can have a daddy. Like That breaks me. And I have no desire ever. Like he gave me everything I ever wanted. He gave me he gave me a kid, more kids. He gave, he married me because I wanted to get married. We got a house. I, everything that I wanted, he gave me. I just didn't. Ex- and we were supposed to do the nonprofit together. I was begging him for years. Let's do a nonprofit. Let's put a foundation attached to your business. And then when he was in rehab, he was looking at recovery house. And again, here I am. I shot him down with that. I'm like, oh, that's just going to be your cover. You're just going to want to get that done so you can see other people. Like, I was not nice about everything because I was insecure. I was so insecure. Mm. And he he didn't build a lot of trust at times. So maybe maybe it wasn't insecurity. It was just your experience of trust at the time. Yeah, that too. There was no there was no trust at that point. I tried. We tried. We tried. And when he came home from rehab, I knew he wasn't ready. Though he couldn't. He couldn't give me some things that I asked for. Like I wanted a GPS on his phone because I just wanted to make sure like where he was going. I wanted accountability and he didn't want to give me that like at all. And then I, of course, I went behind his back and put it on there when he was sleeping. And he freaked out when I finally, because I would see like he took my kids with him like to go like it was nuts. Like at the end, uh, it was, I don't know. It was, it was, it was very, very difficult very difficult, everything. And when you see someone that you just, you just know, it's like, there was no, there was no, like, there was no remorse. He didn't have remorse. He did not, he didn't have it. And I think meth like just destroyed him. Like he was not the same person anymore at all. He wasn't the same person. It, meth, it, it took over. It really took over everything. When you have 
I, I think meth just steals your soul. I think it really just steals your soul. It brings you to things that you would never think you would do. It's just the devil. It's terrible. Sandra, how are your kids doing? I know you just mentioned your youngest one who's, you know, talks about not having a dad. Do they, it's only been two years, so the youngest ones may not fully comprehend what happened, but do the two older ones understand? Yeah. Um, one of them will tell me that they don't like to talk about it because it's easier to forget. And the other one's very angry. She's just angry. She's very angry. They go to counseling. They did more counseling in the beginning, but we are part of where we go to grief group. Okay. We're a part of like Suncoast Kids Grief Group. The Mark Wandel Foundation is another one that does a, they partner with Comfort Zone Camp and they go to a, a weekend camp once a year. So they've gone twice, except my youngest hasn't gone yet because he had to be seven. But we are very much involved in the grief group. We go, it's supposed to be twice a month, but we sometimes only make one of them. But we go, we we actually, just last week, we went with one of the girls from grief group and we went to the beach. It's a difference. Like they really like uh, the grief group. And then they get to do other events that they host during the year. Like they went and did riding and just all different events that they've done. And they are very much a part of it. It's the camaraderie, I guess you would say. Like they, they, they you know, they, they understand each other. Yeah. It was very sad when we went to that last summer. Even my oldest goes, my, and my oldest just turned 18 and he went and he loved it. I would say 95% of the people that lost a parent all lost a dad. Mm. All 95% of them lost a dad and most of them were overdoses. Wow. A lot, a lot. I would say at least 60% were like overdoses. Wow. Sandra, do you know what, do you know your husband's, where his story started with addiction? Obviously, it was long before he met you. Do you know how long was it when he was a kid, adult? I think in his 20s. 20s. I think maybe sometime. I think some of it maybe high school, but I don't necessarily, I, I want to say high school. Do you know if it was like a, an event where, you know. My opinion, when his dad walked out on his mom. Uh, he'll, he would always say, no, that did not bother me. I was so happy to see my dad leave. He made, it was better when he left. But I, I think that, I think that was a very impactful for him. My husband is the baby of seven kids. Wow. And that year that he died, three family members, not siblings, passed away of overdose. Wow. A very close cousin. That was his first cousin had passed away like five, I think almost a year before, maybe less. And a nephew that wasn't an addict and was just partying at, at a, a college. He was actually in movies and everything. And his parents actually started a foundation for sports in memory of him up in Pennsylvania. So three family members passed away in less than a year from drugs. Wow. Sandra, how, how like over the past two years, what would you say is the hardest thing for you in your recovery process of losing your husband to an addiction? The hardest part? And for you, not for your kids, but for you. Accepting things. And it was very lonely. I mean, it was, I was very, very lonely. He was my go-to. Even when he was in rehab, we talked and I would call him for every little thing. 
where he would call me, like I would call the rehabs and then he could call back. Like you leave a message. That was very hard for me. Like I didn't have anybody to, he was very level-headed. I know that sounds like crazy to say that, but he was very level-headed with things. And he was always like, what's the worst that can happen? So what if you try, like do this. And if you, who cares if you lose your job or you, at least you tried, like, you know, he always was stuff like that was hard not having that because I leaned on him for everything. Like looking back, like, and I think of everything, he was right. He couldn't be my cheerleader. He couldn't be what made me happy, what made me sad, what made me angry. He just couldn't be so many things. That's a lot for somebody to be. And I, and I put a lot of, a lot on him. I was, he spoiled me. So, I mean, he spoiled me. So I, you know, I always had everything and I wasn't, I guess I should have been like less with that, you know, like not, I should have been more understanding at times with his recovery, but I just, I didn't understand how much, I didn't even understand what resentment was, but I guess I had a lot of resentment that I had when I had my kids, the twins, he said to me, if you don't, if you want to work, you can work. If you don't want to work, you don't have to work. And I had just gotten a job two years before that in a position that he pushed me to get. And I was so scared. And I was just, um, I was a, a manager in a school kitchen and he pushed me to take that. And I was like, oh, I won't be able to do it. I won't be able to do it. It's a new school, uh, it's brand new. And I did it. And then I got pregnant two years later and I, uh, I left my job, but I guess I didn't, I guess as much as I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, I guess I really wanted, I enjoyed working because uh, I would do a lot of outreach with the school that I was able to, I like outreach as you can see. So I guess I had a lot of resentment that I was staying home. I went from 10 years later, like, you know, I had my first kid and then 10 years later I had twins and I was always, I was a very high risk pregnancy. So that was a lot for me, you know, breastfeeding, you know, babies and he worked and I was home. Uh, it was a lot for me. I had postpartum. So that didn't help, you know, but I hope now that at least I can help other families navigate everything, at least just give them the resources and let them understand what I didn't understand. They always told me like in rehab, like you have to, you have to um, focus on you. You got to focus on you. Their focus is here. You got to focus on you. I didn't understand that at all. Like I really didn't understand that, but it's very much true. You have to disconnect from a situation in order to begin your healing process. Yeah. And if not, it's not going to work because if we had, if I had to focus on my own recovery stuff, not from addiction, but codependency was huge. I was very much codependent on him for everything. I had to heal like past things from my past. I think if we, if I would have healed that prior to us being together, I think we would have both, and he would have worked on his recovery from before he'd ever met me and stayed in the recovery. I think we would have had a really good chance of being strong together. Take addiction out of everything. I think it's very important for everyone to heal any issues or anything that they had before getting involved with anybody. I think we all have stuff that like childhood stuff and just things of growing up. And if you don't heal that, you're not going to have a healthy relationship. It just follows you wherever you go, whatever relationship you're in. Yep. It totally follows you. The word that that I've heard used is detachment. You have to detach and it doesn't mean you're uncaring or unloving, but you have to detach from the addict's behavior and from trying to fix them. But also, Sandra, you said, you know, I, I probably should have been more understanding or this and that. 
it's very hard for people who are not addicts to understand addiction. It just is because we don't think like they do. We don't think like that. Exactly. So you, it's, it's a learning process and that's why, and I'm so glad that you now have this foundation that I'd like to hear that we'd like to hear more about families of addicts, supporting families of addicts so that you can tell people the things that, you know, you've learned hopefully before, you know, before it becomes a problem, a big, a big problem. Tell Yeah. Tell us how you're different. Like what, what's different about your your organization than some of the other organizations we know about? Well, I'm not a 12-step program. I power to everybody that's, you know, does the 12-step. I don't, I'm not familiar so 100% with it, but we're here to help support. Like I believe in talk back and a lot of the 12 steps, you can't, you can't give feedback when you're in the, in, in the support groups. We like to give as much feedback if they want feedback. So not even just for me, if someone else can offer what they like what worked for them. So we have that. We help with all the resources that they need. I'm partnered actually. I partnered up with a um another established nonprofit called um Recovery Epicenter Foundation. And they're up in St. in Clearwater. And we're actually doing a lot of work together. So I also now through them I became I had to get level two background check through DCF. And I am a Narcan distributor. Oh. So I can distribute Narcan to anybody that needs Narcan. What is Narcan? It will reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. You just spray it up. Oh, I see. So if you're around someone who's overdosed, you can help them by doing that. Got it. So I actually try to go into local businesses and ask them if they would like me to do like a little 15 minute seminar and talk about Narcan and then how FASFA is, you know, what we do and offer the resources to them for if they need food assistance, if they need counseling, life coaches. I'm very also big in holistic stuff. So we have yoga instructors, Reiki instructors, uh, float therapy places. We will help like, you know, get families if they need some of that. What else? You, you said you had a local support group. So you're you're in Clearwater, uh, Florida. I partnered with the um, Recovery Epicenter and they're in Clearwater. And I do a lot of work with them at their location. And my support group now, I actually started every second Tuesday of the month. And it's going to be, I don't know if you're familiar with Catering by the Family. No. Oh, it's it's a wonderful um, catering company that I am allowed to use their office to host their meetings for the support groups at nighttime now. Oh, that's awesome. If someone's looking for your support group, can you give the address? Yes, I can. I can give the address, but it's on my like I I have a flyer that I posted on on um on Facebook on the FASFA United page. So it's on there, but it's catering by the family's website is, uh, I mean, address is uh, 2322 West Cypress Street, and it's in Tampa. So that's on every second Tuesday of the month at 7 p.m. And we'll we'll start that in July. And the, the name of your web website is FASFA, F-A-S-F-A united.org. And can people get in touch with you from your website? Is there a place for them to call an email? Yes. 
Awesome. Everything's on there. We're actually getting ready to host our first golf tournament in October. Great. So that's going to be at West Chase. We're always looking for volunteers. If anyone wants to volunteer and help out with that. Awesome. Are you also looking for sponsorship? Yes. Is that also information on your website? Mm -hmm. I'm actually right now, the brochure for the um, golf tournament will be up shortly, but I have the packages all for that and everything. But yep, we are definitely looking for sponsorships as well. That's awesome. And Sandra, primarily the addictions, the families that come to you, are they mostly um, families of addicts who are alcohol and drug related addicts? Do you, uh, do you serve people who are the gambling addicts, food addicts, sex addicts? Um, yes. Sex addicts usually go hand in hand with, uh, with addiction, with substance abuse. They usually go right there, neck and neck together. Yes. I will take help anybody that has any type of addiction, food addiction, everything. I think if we had more compassion and understanding, like on a, just like a smaller scale that it is a relapsing disease. And some people, they, if they go on a diet and they lose weight, they usually, a lot of people go back to the way they normally ate and they, that's, they gain their weight again. That's another, that's a relapse because they did everything that they could to lose the weight, but they go back. And so that's a, a relapse in a sense. You Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. You have to create a new lifestyle for yourself. Mm-hmm. If you want to not have yeah. an addiction, you got to get rid of the friends, get rid of the stuff. You got to create a new lifestyle and Stick with and it. stick with it. It's the sticking with it—that's the hardest part. Even with me, like when I I have a I had a routine, especially the first year. Like I went right into it. I guess to not think about my husband, I went right into like getting a nonprofit, right into doing everything. I had my routine. I got up every morning at four thirty. I did my morning gratitude. I did. Uh, I got rid of the coffee and I did um, lemon water with honey and ginger. I listed everything. I did meditation. I did pray. I did everything. And when I stopped and slowed down, when the summertime came, all those feelings started creeping back up, back up, all that stress, all the, that, that anger, everything just started creeping back up. And I had to like, whoa, I had to take it back and start going back. So if you don't continue anything, everything in life you do requires work. It's what do you want to work at? What do you want in your life? Do you want to be successful? Do you want to be a good mom? And being a good mom is a lot of work and it's not easy all the time when you want to like, ah, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, you got to just keep getting back up. You got to get up, shake that off and just keep going. Sandra, I have, I have one more question for you. It's, It's a question we ask a lot of our guests and I don't, I don't know if Kara has more, but if you were able now, knowing what you know, now knowing you know, I mean, codependency is, I get, I, I understand that and, and understand where you were at the time where you felt like you were really codependent chasing your husband. If you were to go back to that time where you were chasing him and you were frantic, knowing what you know now, what would you tell Sandra? What would you tell that Sandra? Speak kindly, very much speak kindly about yourself and um, be a, be more positive, just positive. If you just if you spew out negative into the world, you're going to get negative back. If you spew kindness, you have a better chance of helping everyone in the world. It's like you water your plants, right? You take care of them. I should have watered. I don't regret. I'm not blaming myself. So let me 
go back because I'm sure people probably like, oh, she's blaming herself, but I'm, I'm not. If you water your plants, you're going to get nice, beautiful flowers. If I watered myself and watered my husband better, we would, the chances of other things, you know, maybe being stronger, it could have possibly been. I don't blame myself. I know he made the own, he made his choices, but I made choices as well. So that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. I love that. That's great advice. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate you being so vulnerable with us and so open to tell your story. That was not an easy story to tell and to live. And I'm sure, you know, it's only been two years. It's still raw. And, you know, anybody goes through a tragedy of losing a loved one. I don't know if there's ever a good time to talk about it because there's always emotion behind it. But we really appreciate you sharing the story. And one more time, I want to just mention Families of Addicts Supporting Families of Addicts. It's www.fasfaunited.org. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. And I want to say, Sandra, I think the biggest message, or not the biggest, but one of the messages I hope the listeners heard was that you don't always know an addict when you meet them. No. You don't always know when someone has addiction. And sometimes it's right under your nose and sometimes it's not. But just what you said to kind of maybe try to be aware if you see signs of something not going well, like talk to the person and and just be curious and find out how they're doing. And like you said, just a little bit of kindness can go a long, long way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes addiction is just I'm hurting and I don't know how to deal with my life and I just need help that I don't know. I need or how to get. Absolutely. It's fear-based. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for being so vulnerable about it. And I know you helped a ton of people. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I hope so. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold be brave, be you, perfectly imperfect you, with love, Kara, and Patty. I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say. I hear some voices. Des will get rid of it. Mixed and edited by Desmond McNeese for We Mixed It, LLC. Go to whatsoundsawesome.com. And cut.